0: I have a question. Sure. How long sure. is this going to take? It shouldn't take a whole lot longer. Do you think I can get there before 129? Um, probably not. Uh, What's that 129? Well, I had a project doing six
1: for conviction of Brendan Dassey. Over the course of season two, we explore the constitutional errors at the heart of this injustice, the chaos of Kaczynski, and the techniques responsible for determining Brendan's fate. The conversation continues. Welcome to the sixth hour. 5 years. I've spent hours, days at a time, buried under the weight of the wrongful conviction of a Mishicot high school special ed student who had gone to school on February the 27th, 2006 as an innocent 16-year-old kid, only to experience a macabre initiation into adulthood at the hands of local law enforcement when he left as a suspect in one of Wisconsin's most notorious criminal investigations. This profound miscarriage of justice is Brendan's story. attorneys claim the jury should have seen this video clip they call it a recantation the state calls it confessors remorse
0: really
1: one of dassey's trial attorneys explained why he didn't feel the jury should see it
0: that's what this was bringing was a motion to the confession versus just the question answer question answer with a uh, a child who has some clear deficiencies.
1: DASI's current attorneys claim his four-hour-long statement was the result of suggestion by police.
0: He did say they made me say it.
1: I'm not concerned with finding connecting evidence placing Brendan inside the crime scene, as Brendan will be state's primary witness, recounts Michael O'Kelly. You're not concerned whether or not at this point What's happening is if you find evidence, that would tend to inculpate Brendan, correct? Replies Robert Dvorak, post-conviction counsel for Brendan. That is correct, says O'Kelly. All right, go ahead and read. And O'Kelly shamefully recounts, This will only serve to bolster the prosecution. It will actually benefit the state if there is evidence attributed to Brendan it will corroborate his testimony and colour him truthful. Okay, says Dvorak. So your goal is not only to get Brendan to confess, but to also go out and gather evidence to help the state in its prosecution, correct? That is correct, says O'Kelly. Even if that evidence tends to inculpate Brendan Dassey, reiterates Dvorak. That is correct said Brendan's own trial investigator. In his post-conviction decision of 2010, Judge Jerome Fox countered that an attorney's performance need not be perfect, nor even very good to be constitutionally adequate. When evaluating effectiveness, the court grants a heavy measure of deference to counsel's judgments. To establish an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, for example, a defendant must show that counsel made errors so serious, so egregious, that counsel was not functioning as the counsel guaranteed the defendant by the Sixth Amendment. Now we know Strickland v. Washington sets the bar low, but surely Kuczynski and O'Kelly, working as an active arm of the prosecution, falls under deficient performance and well below an objective standard of reasonableness. An attorney's performance need not be perfect, but it should, at the very least, include the active representation of their client. As we head into the second season of The Sixth Hour, Brendan Dassey remains incarcerated. This will be his 15th year as an innocent confined to a system that provides little more than a modicum of due process for the children, like Brendan, who are caught in the ebb and flow of flawed investigations, coercive interrogation techniques, and the refusal of the judicious to embrace developments in juvenile neuroscience and brain development research. The conviction of a 16 year old socially, emotionally, and intellectually impaired juvenile despite a lack of corroborative evidence or DNA, merits the continuing chronicle of his story, of Brendan Dassey's story. In this chapter, we discuss ineffective assistance of counsel Miranda, Reed, and the many constitutional errors and arguments lost in time for Brendan. In the first episode of Season 2, I welcome Dean Brian Gallini, Dean Galini thought Brendan's case to be the consummate teaching opportunity and developed a course for his students called Unmaking a Murderer. Intimately acquainting himself with Brendan's case, he assembled course materials and unpacked the diverse range of issues raised specifically by Brendan's case to better educate his law students. I discovered Dean Galini's work in the April of 2018 in a series of posts for the Faculty Lounge that analysed each of the contributing errors that resulted in the wrongful conviction of Brendan Dassey. Dean Galini is a leading scholar in criminal law and procedure, and his expertise is often called upon by local, state, national and international media outlets to provide expert legal commentary, including ABC News, the Associated Press, the LA Times and the Wall Street Journal. His work has been published in some of the nation's leading law journals, such as the Washington Law Review, Hastings Law Journal, the George Mason Law Review, and many others. With his scholarship focused on law enforcement discretion issues in the context of interrogation methods, consent searches, and profiling, I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome Dean Gallini to the sixth hour. 2018, Dean Brian Galini wrote a series of blogs for the Faculty Lounge, focused on the benefit of bringing Brendan Dassey's prosecution into the law school curriculum. Dean Galini joins the Sixth Hour to discuss those issues and the lack of protections the Sixth Amendment affords defendants like Brendan Dassey. Thank you for joining me, Dean.
2: It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
1: As someone who is not well-versed in legalese, but Ambitious to Learn, your series for the Faculty Lounge was both instructive and educative. How did you hear of Brendan Dassey? And what motivated you to dive deeper into the weeds of his case?
2: Yeah, it's, it's funny because when um, when Making Murder came out, I confess I was not an early adopter. I, I hadn't really, you know, when it first came out, I hadn't seen it. But I was teaching the Criminal Procedure course in law school, and that that Criminal Procedure course hits sort of the basics around interrogation and search and seizure. And I also teach the Criminal Procedure two course in law school, which gets into kind of quality of lawyering and the 6th Amendment protections. And students kept coming up to me and asking me, well, have you seen it, have you seen it? And finally, uh, I I said, I've got to see this. And some of my best recommendations that I bring into the classroom come from my students, and so, to their credit, you know, I sat down, and my wife and I watched it. And like the balance of the the country, I was mortified in, in some ways, although I found myself kind of sitting back and saying, despite being mortified, you know, whether I'm cynical or a realist on this point, others can judge. But I thought, I hate saying this is, but th- this is kind of business as usual." And as I really reflected on that reaction of myself, I thought, boy we've got to do better here. We've got to do better in in law schools. I have to do better as as a faculty member. And it really started to zero in on on Brendan's case and and to some degree uh, uh, Stephen Avery's case as well. It's just this amazing teaching opportunity where everyone was engaged and having conversation. And then I started to get questions about uh, from all corners of the student body. Well, You know can they can officers do this and can his lawyer really do that and i thought you know what i need to take a breather here get into the weeds of the case and then start unpacking it and converting it into something that i could deliver in the curriculum itself and and as you mentioned at the outset i've taught this course called unmaking a murder that really is designed to be a very deep dive into brendan's case but it allows students to capitalize on their knowledge from that foundational course in the criminal procedure space and apply it. And so we look at a lot of uh, of the filings, we look at interrogation footage, and really the goal is to get students right into applying the knowledge they have from that criminal procedure class in a way that's very meaningful to them.
1: You call Brendan's case the consummate teaching
2: opportunity. Oh, I mean, 68 million people downloaded serial 19 plus million people have watched the doctor the, you know season one it was just an amazing and remains by the way an amazing opportunity to to talk about things that again going back to my first reaction having watched the documentary things that struck me as so routine but really caused me to pause as an educator and say well but but maybe they shouldn't be and after all, that's that's why I got into the line of work I'm in. But now let's disseminate the knowledge. Let's capitalize on students' interests in a way that can help them see the opportunities to be changemakers themselves.
1: How was the course received by your students?
2: Well, they I would I would lean on, on them for their own reactions. I guess um, I would selfishly reply by saying, I think they've enjoyed it. I think that. It only solidifies, we have this normative response when we watch, for example, the, the, the documentary and we see Kaczynski and how he behaves and we see Wiegert and Fassbender and we see the, the now infamous March 1 interrogation. But what the class does is it allows them to see the things that the documentary didn't show, to get into the filings themselves, the line by line tactical approaches that we can take as lawyers or not. We can see the things that officers might do or not, and the responses that we can have as attorneys in, in the discretion, really the power of discretion that we have as actors in the criminal justice system, and just how powerful that that is, that agency. And I think they I would like to think at least, that they walk away with a deeper sense of ownership around how profound their decision making can be when someone's life's on the line. And I would hasten to add that that's two sides, right? That, that's the defense side. But it's also the prosecution side and the way that we behave as prosecutors and the discretion that prosecutors have in our system of justice that's so premised on, on a discretionary charging system.
1: It's so important to engage students at that stage of their legal education and to help shape how they'll go on to approach cases like Brendan's going forward. Yes. Even unpacking the idea of false confessions for people, whether they go on to be prosecutors or defense attorneys. I also learned that you went on to be certified in the country's most widely used interrogation method, the READ technique. Yes. We could talk about READ for hours. It's been well documented that many investigators come away from that training empowered with the belief that they are, in fact, human lie detectors. The READ method is considered in certain circles, guilt presumptive, it's based on deception, and is inherently confession driven. Did you take a level of healthy cynicism into the course? And and what were your main takeaways?
2: Oh, that's that's a big question and an important one. I guess I would start with why I was there to begin with. I guess the pervasiveness of Reed that you mentioned felt to me like it really hid this powerful reality that law enforcement and law students were learning from different playbooks. So you know, law enforcement was learning or is learning this interrogation technique without necessarily focusing on the constitutional doctrine that, that underpins that technique. But then meanwhile, in courses like mine in that basic criminal procedure course, students are learning the governing law, but they don't learn the technique. And so what I wanted to do and why I wanted to take the class, the, the reading technique uh, class, is I w- want to start bridging that gap in, in my classes so that students would, when they take criminal procedure with me, they would learn to be conversational with the technique they would learn learn to be i would hasten to add uh conversational and social science that's behind the technique and those are in many ways two very different things but but to directly answer your question i guess i i learned a handful of things one and most importantly i learned that i learned that it works i mean it works in the sense that it does well at at a eliciting incriminating statements but notice i'm not saying to your point, truthful or accurate incriminating statements, I'm just saying it's good at that. Uh, And then two, and I think very directly relatedly, it's powerful and dangerous. In other words, because it works, I think it should be viewed like a weapon that, that it can fall into the wrong, and for me, poorly trained investigators' hands. And I think what the public doesn't realize is that this particular technique, maybe sort of walk away point three, it's not regulated. So, so it lacks oversight and continuing ed requirements. And all of the program's graduates seem, I guess, qualified to interrogate suspects, which I find deeply concerning. And, and sure, we hope that officers undergo additional training. But I guess my point and what I took away is that there's a, no central oversight body that's charged with saying, okay, you took step one of the technique, now come back and recertify come back, there's no stair-stepping, it's binary. And and therefore, it has a high risk of of misuse. Because there's no additional training, and because the law doesn't map well with Reed, to go back to that that first point, there's just a risk that interrogators will will misuse it. That risk is much higher. And all of those things are just the the right ground, I think, for false confessions. And so my hope is that by trying to bring it more into the conversational space for lawyers, that we can do that in front of judges, that we can make it the material that is read, we can make that more conversational. But I think we've got a long way to go. But in any event, forgive me for the long-winded answer, that's how I found myself in the classroom and those are some of my takeaways.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think it's really important. We obviously see the read technique used on Brandon and we see the devastating impact that has on him Did learning the strategies behind the nine steps of Reed afford you more insight into Brendan's interrogation experience? And in particular, what failed to protect him?
2: Yes, another excellent, really good question. So, I think a a nuance I would add to your question is that what I learned is not just how powerful the steps are, but how powerful their reorganization or their drag and drop approach can be. So, in other words, I might go with, um, to your point about guilt presumptive, you know, I might walk in and say, you know, I know you did it. I just, the the only question here in this interrogation is to figure out why you did it. And we see that, we see that in in Brendan's case. And so that's step one. And then I go to step two. And what I want to do is develop a theme. And I want to talk about a theme that's going to resonate with Brendan, you can kind of spot this, you know, Fassbender and Uyghur are trying to play this almost Paternal or parental role and that seems to be their theme and what I think the training gives me a better sense of as as an educator and what I try to help my students understand Is just how easy that is to spot and and it was the training that gave me that ability and so you can go back through those transcripts of, Of March 1 or the February transcripts, or even I would argue the November 2005 roadside transcript and you can look at it with a whole different lens and a completely different understanding of what's going on behind the scenes. And the way I analogize it is it's kind of like when, when Brendan steps into that interrogation room, it's like you and I stepping into a car salesman uh, showroom where they know what they're gonna do. You might not know, right? But this is why we might walk away with a new car that day. Just like Brendan, when he walks in, he doesn't know what they're gonna do. They know what they're gonna do. And he might walk away having said, said something uh, that's incriminating. There's one other thing that I wanted to clarify that I think is really important for listeners and just the public to understand. We talk about the word confession in this space like it's an all or nothing, like it's a smoking gun. In other words, it's the I did it statement. But there's something else about the linkage of Brendan's interrogations dating back from November of 05 all the way up to the March 06 interrogation, the one that's featured in the documentary, which is this idea that we don't necessarily need to think of confessions as all or nothing, we just need to think about statements that the suspect might make that are incriminating or could be inferentially incriminating. And we really see that in the links of Brendan's interrogations because they build on one another. And so what can be disingenuous about when that gets rolled out, March 1 is the product of so many conversations that happened before that And when that's all the jury sees, and that's all we see Ken Kratz talking about in that infamous press conference, it belies a really uh, dangerous untold past, which is all of the use of the read steps in all of those preceding interrogations. So to loop back and succinctly answer your question, training gave me a sense of how to, with precision, find the steps in all of the interrogations Brendan was exposed to.
1: I was particularly struck when you wrote about the interrogation that took place in Marionette County, November the the 6th of 2005. It obviously begins as a read interview and you touch on the noticeable shift around the 20 minute mark. That was a revelation for me because you hear the difference in tone coming from Detective O'Neill.
0: It's not too often that somebody's standing by your house, by the field, taking pictures of the van. You got dropped off from school. How many other people are in that school bus? Oh, Plus a school bus driver, right? When you're dropped off, it's such an event that someone's standing in your field taking picture of that van that you remember that too, don't you? Bus driver remembers it, kids on the school bus remember it. The girl taking pictures, you remember that? Well I wasn't Huh? I wasn't looking in the field. You get off that bus and start walking towards your house.
1: Well, sometimes I'm talking to planes.
0: Yeah. you remember that girl taking that picture? You're getting off the bus, it's a beautiful day, it's daylight, and everybody sees it. You do too. Do you remember seeing that girl standing here taking picture? Come on.
1: What I was wondering about with that experience for Brendan, would it be correct to say that Brendan was seized under the Fourth Amendment? Would there be a legal argument for that? His movement was restricted. He was in the back of a squad car. He would not have known his Fifth Amendment rights or his right to terminate the interview or to remove himself from custody. So, should it or could it have been considered a custodial interrogation? And if so, do you believe he should have been read his Miranda rights? Oh,
2: absolutely. So one thing, just to step back, when we think about Brendan as being seized, that's a Fourth Amendment concept that starts to make us think about what exclusionary rule implications might be available to him as a result of being seized. But when we think about Miranda, that's a Fifth Amendment concept And there is some overlap. There's no question I might be seized and in custody, but, but they are distinct concepts. But as it relates to answer your question, to me, there's no there's just absolutely no question that in that roadside stop, he was unequivocally seized. He was not going anywhere. They've got him to your point in the back. We should also add in factually he's been separated from his friend. He is outside of his vehicle. He's got nowhere to go in terms of no one's offering to give him a ride. Uh, he is off of his property, and we should also throw into the mix that his property has been seized in the Fourth Amendment sense because they're executing a several days long search warrant on that property, which is a whole other conversation. Uh, but to stay focused on the issue at hand, yeah, the, the the problem is the detective. You know, he he takes this tone at the at least at the outset, where, as you point out, it was conversational. But even in that tone they're sitting in the, he is sitting in the back of that squad car. The blinkers are going with all of those new facts entered into the mix of our conversation. Brendan can't go anywhere. He's separated from his friend. He's got him a vehicle. His home has been seized because of the warrant. It strikes me that this is not a close case, but one of the things that's going on here, and the reason why it seems close in the law by the time it gets framed up, or more accurately, it doesn't by by Kaczynski, is that officers and prosecutors do a wonderful job to their credit talking about things like it's a framing of well, it's just a witness interview it's not an interrogation i throughout our conversation have been calling it an interrogation because i do believe there were miranda implications there but you notice on the prosecutorial side it's just a witness just a witness interview we just want to get your side of the story we want to hear uh where you were and ask you some questions why, why by the way wouldn't you answer our questions we, we just Unless you got something to hide, surely you don't, right? This is sort of the tactic that can really operate on the mind of a suspect and particularly the mind of a juvenile suspect with documented special needs. So yes, I do think he was in custody. Yes, uh, I think he was subject to interrogation. The related intriguing question to me is, does he say anything, to go back to our conversation about like, what's a confession? Does he say anything that could count as a confession? And on the one hand, I would say, no, he doesn't out and out say anything that's necessarily against his interest, at least in an express way, but it's very clear that they don't find him credible. And that I would argue is what's, you know, what would fall within this broader definition of confession. They don't believe his story about when he got off the bus. They don't believe his story about when he did or, or did not see Teresa Hallback. And it's clear from that conversation that he's now on their radar. And so I think for those reasons, the Miranda conversation is really, really important.
1: I would also throw in at that point, Marionette, that's when the misclassification error comes into play. The investigators start to shape the narrative. They encourage Brennan to think about the girl. There's there's this theme that's developing. That's right. And they actively overcome Brennan's denials on what he knows and doesn't know. It's Uyghur's assertion at trial that February, 27th, for example, was simply a witness interview. I do agree, going back to your point, that there is a series of sequential interrogations for Brendan. And over each of these interrogations, the narrative is embedded. It's entrenched so that as he moves on to the next interrogation, he is going to bring the narrative and the fact-feeding and the contamination of the interrogation before him, with him, into the next interrogation it's it's almost like a backpack. As he goes into each one, the backpack unloads all that he has been fed. That's something that I've thought about quite a lot. No, it's well said.
2: And I think one of the things to think about is the more front-loaded the questions are and the words, they're fact laden they are assertive questions as opposed to open-ended questions. Something you said earlier that merits emphasis is this shift from the behavior analysis interview, which is designed to be a fact-gathering exercise, into a read interrogation, which is more designed to be, as we discussed, a guilt presumptive. I already know you did it. The question is why you did it process. When we see that shift in, in the roadside interrogation in November, the thing I want students to appreciate is there is a direct link, I would argue, between that shift and the law's recognition that the suspect is now in custody. And then to sort of this, your second point about his, I like your framing on backpack. The thing I would add to that, which I I agree with your analogy, and I would add that he gets the message that he's not going anywhere unless and until he gives the answers that satisfy the interrogators. And we see that the the duration of the interrogation, kind of as the interrogators think they've got more details to have him confirm. We see those interrogations get longer. And it's because they want these details and he's not going to go anywhere Uh, until he provides those details. And that's where the social science comes in. And the research is clear on the social science side that these guilt presumptive techniques illustrate, putting aside the nuance of of this warehouse of research, illustrate really two things. One, the read technique shows that the suspect, that his situation is hopeless. That's job number one. And then job number two is the only path forward to relieve the suspect's burden of feeling that the situation is hopeless, is to provide a, a response that will appease the interrogators. That's the only path forward. And when we think of it in that framework, particularly when we juxtapose it against this expanding chronology of interrogations, it really starts to make a lot more sense how you or I or any uh, person off the street would actually confess, even if we're factually innocent. And it becomes a much easier proposition to understand as opposed to this, I think, increasingly and thankfully dated narrative that for so long we, we swallowed hook, line, and sinker that innocent people don't don't confess. So in any event, I, I think that, that that Brendan's case makes for a powerful illustration of all of those concepts.
1: I'd like to briefly touch on February the 27th and the first interview slash interrogation at Mishcot High. I mean, it's obvious from the transcripts that the narrative is that of the investigators, particularly Fassbender. This is an interaction that lasts 41 minutes. The investigators used 3,215 words to Brendan's 1,257. So Brendan spoke for a mere 28% of that interaction. If an interview is a fact-finding exercise, this clearly wasn't that. There's leading questions, they they lie, they use deception, and they contaminate anything that came after it. But this obviously wasn't an anomaly. This behavior would only intensify leading up to and including the March 1st interrogation. What were your first thoughts when you watched the actual interrogations?
2: Well, boy, there's a lot to unpack there. I think well done on the word count. It's a powerful observation and one that illustrates, again, the shift from witness interview where in the training, by the way, interrogators are training, let the suspect do all the talking during the behavioral analysis interview. And then when it shifts to interrogation, the interrogator does all the talking. Now what's interesting, you just to pause and provide some framing, when the read technique to be charitable to it for a moment, when it does what it's designed to do, we're supposed to do the behavioral analysis interview as interrogators to collect, and lock in a statement. Then we leave, we let the suspect go, and we're supposed to investigate the statement to find some corroborating information, whether it's another witness, it's fingerprints, it's a handwriting sample, you name it. Once we have that corroborating information, now it's time to go back and do the actual interrogation and explain to the suspect why the interrogation has shifted from this interview process to a guilt-focused process because we have actual evidence. When you think of it that way, Reed actually doesn't sound so bad. The problem, as Dassey's uh, interrogations illustrate, is when you skip steps, and this is what I meant by Reed being a weapon, when you skip steps, it becomes weaponized. And by those steps, I mean not just in the nine step technique, but in the actual investigation. Where is the physical evidence to tie Brendan to this crime? And it leads me to be very skeptical in both in Brendan's case and in all defendants, where all we're doing is relying on the confession as the evidence. I would like personally to see corroboration of the verbal, whatever the suspect says that's incriminating. Now, as it relates to the February 27th, it's very clear really, really early on that Reed is prevalent. And so, you know, at the outset, they say he's not under arrest, which, by the way, is really. Common code language to get out of thinking that this is custodial. They also add that he's free to leave, that he doesn't have to answer any questions. But then, just two minutes in, they start talking about justice for Teresa. They're confrontational with him uh, within those first two minutes. So, uh, recall Fassbender says, You know, I'm looking at you, uh, Brendan, and I know you saw something, and I know that that's bothering you. And then, very quickly after that, they say, Well, we'll go to, we'll to back for you. you know. We'll, we'll say, we're not gonna run back and tell your grandma and your grandpa that you told us. And then for, for 20 minutes within that conversation, to your point about he only said a, a, a handful of words compared to the detectives, he's largely unresponsive, but they break through when Weger tells him, it's not your fault. And Fassbender goes on this long uh, diatribe about how they're not gonna leave him high and dry you should get this off his chest. It's Steven's fault. And Brendan's still sort of unresponsive. And he continues and says, You know, you saw some body parts, but you don't have anything to worry about. You, you don't have to prove anything. Now you're shaking your head. Tell us what you saw. This is all bleeding. It's all, to use your, your word, and it's a good word, and it's a, a social science buzzword, as I'm sure you know contamination. So it's not Brendan saying that. It's, the investigators saying that
0: you could tell us uh, that you may have held back for whatever reasons and I don't want to assure you that Mark and I both are in your corner we're on your side and you did tell us yourself that one of the reasons you hadn't come forward yet was because you were afraid you're scared and, and one of the reasons you were scared was that you would be implicated in this or people would say that you helped or did this Mm -hmm. okay and that you might get arrested and stuff like that okay and we understand that one of the best ways to, to to prove to us or more importantly you know the courts and stuff is that you tell the whole truth don't leave anything out don't make anything up because you're trying to cover something up a little um and even if those statements are against your own interest, you know what I mean, that, that makes you, it, may, it might make you look a little bad or make you look like you were more involved than you want to be uh, looked at, um, it's hard to do, but it's good from that vantage point to say, hey, there's no doubt you're telling the truth because you've now given the whole story, you've even given points where it didn't look real good for you either.
2: When we skip steps, this is a problem. I, I would give you a different response if Fastbender were, you know, pointing to this case file and he said, listen, we got, just to be dramatic about it, we got pictures of you standing at the scene where, oh, there you are. You know, you're right next to the body parts. Please explain yourself. That's not obviously what's happening here. And at that moment, Brennan gives his first arguably directly incriminating, in one word, he says toes. He said, I saw toes. And, it, and as you know, they, they get him to, to say he saw some clothes and I think he says like a blue shirt, some pants. Of course she wasn't, that's what she was wearing. So there's all kinds of inconsistencies that flow uh, from that. But I guess the point is that's the first place where we can see with just explicit clarity the link between misuse of the interplay of the re technique steps. And, and again, this interchange and the weaponizing of, of the technique. And we get an incriminating statement. I can almost, you know, see the shift in that moment. Very shortly thereafter, they permit him to go back to class. Of course, he's only you know, back for a few minutes. And then they take him to the station. Everything's changed in that moment from just that one yeah. word.
1: In that interaction, it's very obvious. When Fassbender talks about the body and when he is reiterating what Brendan has apparently said, he talks of Brendan seeing a stomach or torso. They're not words Mm. that came out of Brendan's mouth. That's right. When you read the transcript, that is very apparent. And most of the information concerning Miss Halbach doesn't come from Brendan. Correct. It's Fassbender confirming his own words. And when we talk about corroboration, they sent 500 items to the state crime lab and not one of them tested positive for Brendan Dassey's DNA. I think that's astounding that that we have a conviction
2: no and and we rely again solely on that confession and and we tell we, we fast forward we tell the jury a story that's built on only the march confession so they're missing all of this other context that you and i are talking about and it's kind of like if i only showed you one piece of the movie with a really complex plot, you walk away with one impression. But if I showed you a little more of the movie, right? Yeah. It tells you a little bit more of our impression. So we have, uh, in addition to everything else we're talking about, we've sliced it down to one framing of one narrative that gets presented to the jury. And by that point, there's really very little for all sorts of reasons that that at that point, the Brendan's lawyers can do with the guilt phase that, that's going to help.
1: That brings me to something else you wrote. And I quote, The prevalence of the read technique speaks for itself, but its pervasiveness hides a powerful reality. And you said this before in terms of law enforcement and law students learning from different playbooks. Yes. That Dassey's case demonstrates why knowledge of the technique as incorporated into a motion to suppress could have meaningfully impacted the admissibility of his March 1st confession. Can you speak to that potential impact?
2: Well, (laughs) to make it really straightforward, if you have a lawyer that doesn't waive all of your claims uh, related to Miranda, and Dassey had some amazing motion to suppress claims as it relates to to Miranda, if we live in a world where his lawyer doesn't waive those claims, then we could imagine separate and independent, a, a motion that's built on separate and independent claims to suppress November 5, both February 27th and March 1. And there's all sorts of legal arguments that go with each of those independently. But what I would really emphasize is we would start with the remedy. So if if I'm Brendan's defense attorney, I start, I reverse engineer, I start with what statements do we wanna make sure stay out? And defense attorneys, I see this all the time. In motions to suppress, they say, in the remedy section, we just we want to move to suppress statements. And one of the things that I try to, to talk about with students is, well, please don't fall into that allure. We want to figure out what statements are arguably incriminating, going back to our broad definition of confession. And that's what we seek to suppress. So if we loop back to the part of our conversation about November, we'd want to suppress his you know, getting caught with the detective about whether he first says, I didn't see the girl, and then he get, O'Neill gets him to say, I saw the girl. Well, that's gotta be out. That's incriminating, in my view. And then we go to the twenty seventh, and we say our right, remedy, we want that statement about the toes, out. Then, and, and we sort of build that out one at a time, so that if we're successful, by the time we get to trial, in a case like this, whereas we've been visiting, all the prosecution has is statements, there's nothing for them to introduce. Because we've chopped all four of those key pillars, no, November, the two February's and March, we've chopped them out of the prosecution's case. There's nothing left. So in short, and I guess to be really, really brief, it changes everything. I don't think he's convicted. If you've got a really savvy attorney, and actually maybe you don't even have to be that savvy, but uh, better than maybe the different facets of our conversation, then those statements are suppressed and the prosecution has nothing to proceed on. Because as you point out, There's no physical evidence.
1: You also wrote of the relationship between interrogation methods and Miranda. Can you unpack that relationship and how would that relationship apply to Brendan's case?
2: Yeah, we touched on it just a little bit a few minutes ago, this idea that if I'm a prosecutor, I want my officers to always call the interaction with even the suspect, just a witness interview. That's just a tactical framing. But then we also want to teach our defense attorneys to know about that and to not lean into it and not accept it just because that's what the prosecution calls that interaction doesn't mean we have to accept that. And you notice again that I have called all four of these interactions. I've called them interrogations. But in order to get in that mindset, I've got to be thinking about, okay, well, well what does interrogation mean exactly? And as it relates to Miranda, it means two things. One, questions. I know that's shocking. You know, things that I call it the question mark rule. Things that at the end have a question mark. That's interrogation for purposes of marine And then the second thing it means is the functional equivalent of interrogation. That is, things that we would expect are reasonably likely to elicit an incriminating response. So if I just make a statement to you that we would anticipate you responding to, like, you did it. And your response is, well, no, I didn't or you know, the gun is over there, right? So question mark and things that would be reasonably likely to elicit an incriminating response, so those two things. If we apply those two definitions all the way back to the roadside interrogation, that interaction is rife with just questions. When we view it that way, as it relates to Miranda, the sole question becomes custody. And so it's a framing. It takes, as you know, in order for Miranda to apply, we need the union of custody and interrogation. But when we think of interrogation this way, it takes it legally off the table. All of that interaction is interrogation, and the sole legal question becomes custody. And again, that's where the read technique comes into play. When we use guilt-presumptive questioning techniques, and we've got a lawyer who argues this transition to a guilt-presumptive interrogation process Means that Brendan is no longer a witness, he's a suspect, and he's not going anywhere. That's custodial. So, that to me is how the Miranda Doctrine links up in real time to his interrogations.
1: I was particularly struck with Brendan's Fourth Amendment rights, as we touched on before. He was seized. He was wholly reliant on the investigators. He would not have understood his rights or how to invoke those rights. At this point, is Miranda meaningless? We know that 85% of people waive Miranda. And for juveniles like Brendan, compounded by his speech and language impairments, he would not have understood them or that Miranda signals danger. And as we saw, he waives them because he is innocent. As many innocent people, as many wrongfully convicted people do. Do you think the warning is sufficient in its detail? As it was read to Brandon, that he could or should affirmatively invoke those rights. No,
2: no, and there's so many reasons why not. There's the the very high level one that you point out, which is the suspects' waive. And I just wanted to quickly say I don't think that means necessarily that Miranda's ineffective, but what it does mean is we need more educated defense lawyers to not take that waiver at face value. Just like we talked about the framing of the interrogation as a witness interview, waiver is a framing right? The suspect, wave. talk to me. Uh, okay, I know that's your interpretation of what happened, but here are some legal arguments that suggest otherwise. But, but putting that aside, the more, for purposes of our conversation today, a compelling example is the way that his Miranda warnings are delivered to him, and then in some instances, as you know, or not. And so one of the things that we really want to pay attention to, I think, as a society and certainly as I would argue both sides of the fence, prosecutors and defense lawyers, is it's not binary. It's not, he got warnings or not, he waived or not. We need to inquire about how he received his warnings. Very different, for example, a different way of framing it. If I read to you all the warnings, and then I say to you, you understand your warnings as I've read them to you, right? In other words, who wouldn't, right? What are you, an idiot? And so you say, yes, I do, and that's it. That's very different from we go one warning at a time, and I read them to you, I pause. Again, one warning at a time. You have the right to remain silent. Pause. I would ask you to please read that on your waiver form. Do you understand the rights as I've communicated them to you and as you've read? Then we initial. I should also point out at the outset, really good interrogators do what I call some baseline questioning, and this didn't happen with Brendan. They say, uh, well, did you get uh, some sleep last night? Yeah, I did. I slept pretty well. Are you on any medications that would interfere with your ability to have a conversation with me today? Well, I take a multivitamin or I take this for whatever. Good. Uh, did you have any food or can I get you anything? Are you, are you thirsty? Good interrogators are knocking these arguments that a defense lawyer would later have, just knocking them out of the park. And it's also doing something that's really important, which is providing a foundation of competency. This never happened, right, with Brendan. So when, when we ask him, and, and there's so many good examples, as I know you know, but you know, they, they don't secure any of his waivers on a right-by-right basis. Uh, moreover, we don't even have a record of one of his waivers in the way that they secured. It happens off-camera, and it happens uh, when they get on camera, and that March 1 is what I'm referencing. When they get on camera, all that he says, all that Weigert um, says is, you remember those rights right, Brendan? That's it. Yes. Right. And we accept that as waiver. That's wild to me. So again, and I think this is, it's an excellent question. It gets to this. Let's stop talking about rights as either they're there or they're not and start asking the question, how did officers deliver the rights to the suspect? Let's stop talking about waiver as all or nothing. Let's talk about what kind of waiver we're actually seeing as a factual matter.
1: Miranda was developed for an eighth grader to read, and we know that those who are susceptible to false confessions and in many instances often have a lower IQ or comprehension limitations, like those of Brendan, even at an eighth grade level, it would have been difficult. Perhaps it's true that Miranda is usually invoked by those who are familiar with the system. That's right. Innocent people will generally agree to waive their rights. With those pronounced impairments, like those of Brendan's, is there an argument to be made that he could not have waived them voluntarily, knowingly, and intelligently, particularly in light of the different readings of Miranda he received?
2: Yes. There's a couple things here. First of all, we want a lawyer for him that doesn't treat waiver in one space as waiver from another. In other words, just because the prosecution might have a better waiver case. I'm just making this up for November 10. It doesn't mean that he waived in February. Just like because he might have waived in February 27 in the schoolhouse, it doesn't mean that he waived in the interrogation. And that certainly doesn't mean that he waived on March 1. So first first of all, we really need to pay attention to each of these issues recycles each time he has law enforcement contact. And in this specific case, we talk about it like it's all or nothing. Well, he waived on March 1, but that doesn't mean he waived on all the proceedings. And, and of course, it doesn't mean that he legally waived on March 1. It's just how the conversation has evolved. So second, to your point, within that frame, each time we would imagine a defense attorney making an independent argument, wholly apart from all conversation about the way the warnings were read to him, that no. The waiver was not voluntary as a result of the totality of the circumstances, including things like, as you point out, his age, his educational background. I would throw into the mix his socioeconomic status and his just sort of understanding of the world and his worldview. And there's so many examples. As I know, I don't have to tell you about his inability to truly understand the gravity of the situation. You know, at the school, the schoolhouse interrogation uh, on the 27th, before he goes to the station house, is, you know, he's worried about getting back to class. One key
0: exchange starkly revealed Brendan's One frame of mind. The statement by Brendan about wanting to go back to his sixth-hour class after having confessed that was stunning to me. It just showed how vulnerable Re- Brendan was and how easy a mark he was these police officers. Am I going to be at school before school ends? Probably
1: not. He absolutely has no idea of the significance of what he's just done.
0: That to my
2: head. So there's all sorts of, I would argue, really robust ground in that transcript to point to really good examples about how, no, uh, he didn't wave. And there's one other thing we should throw into the mix on this, which is the Supreme Court's been very clear that a suspect simply responding to interrogation is not waiver. And so one of the things that also good interrogators will do, which we don't really see in this case, we'll, we'll see a transition in the interrogation between the reading of the rights, the securing of the waiver, and then a separate sort of you know additional Miranda uh, a waiver question, which is. Do you understand each of these independent rights, and with these in, rights in mind, do you agree to talk to me, understanding that you can stop at any point? And what we see in Brennan's case is this pivot right away from, oh, he's signed or he's given us some verbal acknowledgement, and we go right into questioning. That's a real flag uh, for, for us in this specific case, because the court has not been kind to interrogations like that.
1: We know that as soon as a suspect is charged, that one's right to the Sixth Amendment, right to counsel, is an automatic attachment. We also know that Brendan's first court-appointed attorney, Ralph Jelski, withdrew hours after Brendan's initial court appearance after learning he was a distant relative of Teresa Halbuck. But in this one day, he managed to get Brendan to waive his preliminary hearing he also spoke to the press incriminating Brendan. Was the waiving of the preliminary hearing detrimental to Brendan's case going forward?
2: The way that I frame it, yes. I mean, in the landscape of this case, it's such a footnote, which is, as I say it out loud, disturbing by itself, right? But, but yes, and, and the reason I think so is the preliminary hearings, I think good defense lawyers will tell you, are a wonderful opportunity for informal discovery. So in other words, at a preliminary hearing, uh, we won't assume that everybody knows what that means. It's an adversarial hearing where the prosecution bears the burden to prove by probable cause that the defendant committed the crime and therefore there's sufficient evidence to, to quote unquote bind over the defendant for trial. Now it's a bit of a you know, poker game here because the prosecution wants to put on just enough evidence to cross that probable cause threshold, uh, but not so much that they give their whole case away. But in doing that, the reason it's a good uh, route for informal discovery, even if I think my client is overwhelmingly guilty, what I should do is get up and cross-examine all of the prosecution's witnesses so that I can at least try to find out where the holes are in the case and I can start building my own thoughts for trial testimony should it go that far. Or probably more importantly, I start to build some leverage for plea bargaining should my particular case uh, go in that direction. As it relates to Brendan's case, This would have been a wonderful early opportunity to force the prosecution to put on, as we've been discussing, the fact that they had no physical evidence tying him to the crime, and therefore they would have to rely exclusively on the interrogators and the arresting officers to talk about his statements. We could have started to build a record there and a theme. That's the word I would really communicate, is the theme that this case is built on statements, the statements are built on a method, that uh, was weaponized, and we're going to hit that theme at all of these incrementally, procedurally significant areas in his case. So I'll stop there. It's a, it's a robust opportunity that was missed, I guess I would close by saying.
1: There seems to be quite a few of them. <laughs> Before we jump into the level or not that the Sixth Amendment affords defendants or the representation or not of Len Kaczynski, can you talk to the fallibility of Strickland and why it's considered a negligence standard, and perhaps some reasoning as to why Brendan's team favoured Kyler v. Sullivan over Strickland for their IAC claim.
2: Yeah, you ask questions that are so hard to be brief on. Um, well, <laughs> this, I will try. Well, so first, for the benefit of listeners, Strickland is a Sixth Amendment, as, you, as you've observed, claim that emanates from the Sixth Amendment. And I use the word eminent because it addresses what constitutes effective assistance of counsel. And i highlight that word effective because there is no textual requirement in the Sixth Amendment for you and I and Brendan to receive effective assistance of counsel. Instead, the Sixth Amendment simply talks about the assistance of counsel. And so in 1984, Strickland comes along and provides this reading that to some degree is controversial of the Sixth Amendment that says, well, what the the amendment really means is effective assistance of counsel. And this was a completely new way of thinking about the requirements of of, uh, defense counsel. And it was needed, right, because I might, prior to Strickland, get an attorney, but that says nothing about what the attorney has to do. Now, Strickland is the consummate, you know, congrats, there's a standard, but the standards are really low bar. And and it requires simply that counsel's representation not fall below an objective standard of reasonableness that doesn't prejudice the defense and therefore have an effect uh, on the judgment. And as years since Strickland ha- has demonstrated, you know there are critics from from all corners of the earth that, that demonstrate the Supreme Court set the bar really low, and so if someone put it like it's the fog the mirror test, you know, as long as the attorney can walk up to the mirror and and, and fog up the mirror, you know, that passes the the Strickland test. So that being said, I do think there were opportunities and missed opportunities to articulate the behavior of, of Kaczynski that could have invigorated that standard in a couple of ways, one of which is First of all, we've got to articulate independently where Kaczynski went wrong. That's number one, and we can have that conversation. But number two, I think we, we missed the opportunity to remember that, that Strickland v. Washington is a federal constitutional standard. But where's the argument that at the state, the Wisconsin state constitutional level, the courts should treat Strickland more narrowly to provide Wisconsin citizens with more protection, Recognize all of these problems associated with the federal standard. And I just wanted to throw that in the mix of thinking before we dismiss, yes, Strickland is a, is a bad standard. I've been a huge critic of it in my own writing. But that doesn't mean we're, we should ignore it as a tool because we've got to keep working to reform uh, reform the law. So th- that's just two cents on on Strickland, at least.
1: I think it's interesting that Judge Fox goes on to cite Strickland when he removes Kaczynski from the case.
2: Yes. And more and, and recognizes that Kaczynski's behavior falls below this objective representation and the state public defender's office sends Kaczynski a letter in August of 06 that removes him it decertifies him from the class A felony appointments list. These are the kind of things that the appellate courts have been clear that falls below right, the objective representation that we would expect a defense lawyer to provide. And I think uh, the, the only thing that was disappointing in reaching into the recesses of my memory about Judge Fox is he really pointed to when Kaczynski permitted Brendan to be interviewed without Kaczynski's presence in that May 13 interview, with, you know, where Fassbender and uh, Weird come back. It's May of 06. At this point, Kaczynski is basically an arm of the prosecution, would seem, and they let the two of them interview Brendan again without Kaczynski's presence. I would argue, it for me, Kaczynski's behavior, if you can imagine, is is worse earlier, and I would have loved it if Judge Fox had called that out.
1: Judge Fox, in his post conviction analysis, wrote Kaczynski adequately represented Dassey's interests yeah. and cannot be said to have provided ineffective assistance of counsel. Yet he removes him. And in terms of the interrogation on the 13th of May, Brendan's interrogated alone, and Kaczynski allows this to take place in his absence. It's done knowingly. Is this a violation of his Sixth Amendment rights? And because of that violation, is the phone call to Brendan's mother now fruit of the poisonous tree? And if so, why and how was it used at trial?
2: Wow, there's a lot to unpack there too. So to be charitable to Judge Fox, which is hard. Yeah. He gets away with that. To answer the first part of your first question, he gets away with that line of thinking because if we focus only on the May 13 interaction, remember Strickland is two parts. It's an, and it's a conjunctive. It's objective, standard of reasonableness. One, that prejudices the defense in an outcome-determinative way, stated more accessibly the error on behalf of the attorney, it must be more likely than not that if we removed that error, Brendan would have been found not guilty. Well, if we focus on the 13th in isolation, which is the wrong way to frame it, but but to, to again, we're trying to be charitable just for a second so we can understand how this logic could work. What the judge is thinking is, well, you've got the March 1 statements you've got the february 27 statements right you've got all these other things that because those are coming into evidence and most prominently the march 1 confession is what gets introduced as you know then that's not going to satisfy standard number two the prejudice uh, element and therefore it might well have fallen below the objective representation but it didn't prejudice brendan's defense because the outcome would have been the same and i can't tell you how many times including in brendan's case as we're discussing that line of rationale persists not just at the state habeas level but in state appellate courts on direct appeal and in federal courts on collateral review as well. So I just wanted to point that out by way of, uh, by way of rationale.
1: When you think of the litany of errors and misdecks by Kaczynski and the impact they had in 2006 and continue to have on Brennan's legal pathways particularly as it relates to the suppression hearing and the waving of Miranda, what disturbs you the most? That's it.
2: It's, it's the suppression hearing. And his statement at the suppression hearing where he says, uh, he tells the court, and it's amazing how an entire case can go away in one paragraph. So he says, based on the review of the tapes and the transcripts and consultations with my client and the investigator, Michael O'Kelly, the same investigator who would interrogate uh, Brendan separately, the witnesses, he says, the question is whether is not whether this is custodial interrogation, because that's not an issue. And it's not custodial uh, because the giving of Miranda rights or the failure to do so would be relevant in determining voluntariness. That That would not earn a passing grade in the basic criminal procedure class for me, because They're two totally separate constitutional doctrines. Whether statements should be admitted pursuant to Miranda is something totally different from whether the statements were provided voluntarily. Stated differently, a suspect might provide voluntary statements, but they can't be introduced because the taking of those statements violated Miranda. When Kaczynski says that, not only does he conflate doctrine, he throws away all of these amazing constitutional arguments that we've been visiting about related to Miranda. So, if I had to pick one thing, and it is hard to pick one thing about his representation, that deeply disturbs me. It's it's that performance uh, in in the suppression hearing where he just so casually disregards, and then, and then I promise I'll be done. The court shows it up. He says so. The the trial judge says, so Miranda warnings are not an issue. So mirandizing is not an issue, and neither is the custodial or non-custodial. Okay, moving on. Now it's in the record. He has sealed the fate. I don't care how good, and Brendan has had some amazing attorneys work on his case. I don't care how good they are. That single interchange made their job almost insurmountable, the hill that they would have to climb legally to get a different outcome on the admissibility of his statements.
1: Kaczynski's representation was incredibly malignant to Brendan. Just the idea that he concedes that Brendan wasn't in custody for the Feb 27th and March 1st interrogation is just mind blowing.
2: Well, in some ways, I might take us back to you know his actual appointment. He doesn't meet with Brendan. Your memory is probably better than mine, but he doesn't meet with him until three days after appointment, and he gives this quote in an interview. Before meeting Brendan to the media, where he says something like, "You know, we have a boy here who is morally and legally responsible, but who's influenced by by someone else." So before he's even met, and he hadn't even looked at the at any of the interrogation tapes, and he just sacked his client without even doing any sort of due diligence. And and of course, as you know, there's many there's many other examples of of uh, Kaczynski prioritizing media appearances on Dateline and. Uh, TV, yeah. TV.
1: Yeah. Nancy yes. Race. Yes. NBC. Yep. I think there are 10 interviews that he did before he actually spoke to Brendan. No, that sounds right. He spoke to the media more than he spoke to Brendan. And then he hires O'Kelly, a so-called investigator, to interrogate his own client and obtain a further confession to aid the prosecution. Yes. They were obviously working for the prosecution. They were not working for Brendan.
2: Well said uh, on O'Kelly and the way that he treats Brendan with so many different portions of their interaction. Uh, It's beyond disturbing. Yeah, You know, he he point, I think, very much did the work for the prosecution dating all the way back to, you know, Brendan, as you know, we've been asking for a um, polygraph. The polygraph was inconclusive, but O'Kelly nonetheless tells him that Dassey were a kid without a conscience, I think he says to him. That's right. And it, and it just proceeds from there. the I mean, um, very abusive. I would argue to to Brendan, in ways that in ways that we would anticipate. Well, we would think that comes from uh, from fast Fassbender, and this is his own uh, investigator. So yes, I mean, there's so much. Obviously, there's so much more to be said there, but disturbing behavior all the way around in that space.
1: It is so incredibly egregious what Michael O'Kelly did. Touching on the polygraph in 2010 at the post-conviction trial, it was stated that Brennan did indeed pass the polygraph. O'Kelly just lied to Brennan. But we do know from other cases, like Jeffrey Deskovich, for example, polygraphs are often used because they're not admissible in court and they can be used to coerce and manipulate statements. I mean, you can hear in the interaction between Brendan and O'Calley that Brendan just doesn't understand how he could have failed it. Right.
2: Yes. No, you remember the facts better than me. I think he said something like, you know, it, it indicated deception and Brendan thinks he passed it as a result. Yeah.
1: That's exactly right. In terms of the Sixth Amendment and how it protects defendants, how does it fail them?
2: Amendment fails defendants in this effective representation strictland space by permitting professional behavior that is objectively insufficient. So, in other words, that plays out for me in two ways. One, the low standard itself, which we've been visiting about, but then the second one that, that we haven't uh, touched on yet is is lower courts' interpretation of that standard, which, to my mind, has further lowered the bar, and, and we could point to Brendan's case specifically as an illustration where on direct appeal uh, and before the Wisconsin state courts, the Wisconsin state appellate courts, in an unpublished opinion, spend just a couple of paragraphs dismissing his, his Strickland claim. And so I think I would emphasize that there are really two things going on. There's the standard itself, and there's the way the standard's interpreted. And it's why I feel so passionate about educating lawyers to not only defence lawyers not only wrestle with the federal standard, but to separately put that aside and try to encourage state courts to wrestle with a, a more protective state constitutional Sixth Amendment. And I think that's a space that, to this point, is insufficiently litigated.
1: Yeah, and also that right to trial by an impartial jury. What that brings me to is the jury selection process preceding Brennan's trial. Fremgen and Edelstein select 12 women and four men in a case involving the homicide of a young woman. Surely gender bias would be evident in that jury selection.
2: I, I might even take us, so this is a different section of the Sixth Amendment from the Strickland space, but, uh, but you're right, I mean, that's the right clause. And I might take us one step out, composition aside, I think that the interview, sorry, at the interview, the uh, press conference, that, that Kratz gives, where he, he so callously and carelessly says, well, we now know, right? We now know what happened here. And, and it, it's as though in this smaller community, guilt is, is, is established. What's the point in having a trial? We figured it out. In the media narrative, spins, and this is, as you know, a, a very closely covered case. And I almost, feel like composition aside, although I don't mean to, I think you're making an excellent point that, that the die in some ways was cast because of the deep and profound media coverage that kind of encased the, the, the available jury pool in ways that have made it different, very difficult, I think, to have a, have a different narrative at all for the, from the defence perspective.
1: On the one hand, you have the Sixth Amendment guarantee a defendant's right to a fair trial. Then on the other hand you have the First Amendment which affords the media the freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And in the middle you have this right to an impartial jury which obviously is an essential component of a fair trial. How do we get there when we're looking at the Kratz press conference? There was an incredible amount of media interest in that case in real time every single day. Both the prosecution and the defense gave interviews how does a fair trial happen in that environment
2: in my opinion and i feel strongly about this there's really there's no baby to be split here between the first and the sixth amendments in other words good prosecutors do not engage in that press conference and the reason they don't i mean there's so many reasons but one of the reasons is good prosecutors play the long game and they're immediately from the get-go thinking about protecting their conviction and reverse engineering that. So they're assuming I will get the conviction. What are the things the defense might do on appeal to reverse or undermine the integrity of that conviction? And when Kratz gives that press conference, he is giving away a free and very strong appellate issue that good prosecutors would spot and never do. And I think the second, and by the way, it's one of the reasons why at the federal level, federal prosecutors are notoriously tight-lipped. It just can't comment on an ongoing investigation, moving on. Right? That's the reason why. And and the second reason is I think in Kratz, and this is less true at the at the national level, but certainly with Kratz, I think there's an ethical issue there. I don't think that prosecutors, as a matter of course, go out and just fill their guts about a case in a way that is guilt presumptive and does not respect the deep tradition we have in this co- country, and a con- constitutional tradition, by the way, that due process clause requires that we presume the defendant's innocent. So for him to sit down and say, we know, that's antithetical to, to our criminal justice system, which raises for me a personally, I think, prosecutorial ethics questions. And by the way, just to complete that thought, it's because the prosecutor's duty is to seek justice. And good prosecutors don't associate seeking justice automatically with, I must get the guilty conviction. They treat it as truth-finding process, and those are very different things.
1: In Australia, for example, we don't. Even with high-profile cases, the press plays it very close to their chest in terms of the amount of information they release to the public. We don't get names, and we certainly don't get definitive statements of guilt through national public channels. For good reason. As Brendan waits for his next legal steps, what legal arguments through your research and discourse do you believe are potential pathways for Brendan to pursue back in state court?
2: Yeah, so state collateral appeal. First, I think we should clarify for listeners that Appellate remedies—the longer they go and the more that we pursue—are sort of like the large department store that has clothes set out. And if you're late to looking at the clothes, the clothes are kind of picked through, and the stock is lower. And you know, we're frustrated that we didn't get the best, you know, availability when the the product was first put out. And in many ways, that analogy holds up here because he's been litigating claims for years now, unsuccessfully, and therefore, you know, the stock is reduced and the availability of of the good product is likewise reduced. State collateral uh, appeal, uh, sorry, state collateral attack in many ways is is an example of that because I'm pretty pigeonholed in terms of what I get to argue and common arguments are, I've got newly discovered evidence, Uh, I've got claims of factual, i.e. actual innocence. But relitigating a lot of the stuff that we're talking about is very difficult Mm -hmm. because the standards of review, or maybe more excessively stated, the level of deference that we provide to prior court's review of his claims gets higher and higher and higher. And so overcoming those, even if on the merits, as we've been discussing, there are overwhelming legal problems, the standards of review preclude a brand new sort of start over looking with fresh eyes at the particular claim. So. I guess I would label myself, and perhaps I've just been you know, following this for too long and seeing kind of the roller coaster of his claims receive merit or not. But I think the pathways are pretty narrow at this point, because he's going to have to find out someone else who did it, I think, at this point. And, and that's going to be a difficult, I suspect, proposition, given that a lot of people have been working on that for many, many years.
1: And what would you like to see happen going forward for Brennan Dassey?
2: I suppose i I would like to see let me start by answering for those who would be listening and who would say he's guilty, and why would somebody confess going back to this narrative? What I would say to that person before I answer the question is that the way this investigation was uh, took place it was was so fraught with constitutional problems, investigative problems that we don't know. It's so irreparably harmed by those investigative techniques that the question of guilt or innocence, we can't know. We can't go back because the steps that investigators took can't answer that question for us. And I think that's a really important observation for people to wrestle with so that I can now answer and say, regardless of whether he did it or not, this is not how in our country we should put someone in prison. This is not how we should remove somebody's liberty. So putting this, putting, and this is a hard thing, I think, to say, but his case, I think we have to to wrestle with it. We just shouldn't be signing up for criminal justice system that relies on fraught interrogation, the use of fraught interrogation techniques and and so many of the other things that I won't repeat that we've been visiting about as a basis to provide someone with a life sentence that I would like to see him walk out. And I would like to see him walk out regardless of the guilt or innocence question. And I say that, again, not for factual reasons, but for legal reasons. Because we wanna have public trust in the rule of law. We wanna have confidence that when the person convicted is locked up, we have confidence as a society that the steps taken to remove that person's liberty are ones that we feel like yes this is why i pay taxes this is my confidence in my in the strength of the rule of law and i don't have that i don't have that confidence but when we focus so much on guilt or innocence not that it's a meritorious conversation and and boy it is we miss the opportunity to think about his case as a broader statement on the strength of our criminal justice system and the rule of law so i'd like to see him walk out For that reason. And I would love it if people focused a little bit more on the steps. And again, I acknowledge this is a hard thing to kind of shift our focus as opposed to the binary question of guilt or innocence.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Dean, for your time. This has been incredible.
2: Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed it and appreciated it. I I so appreciate all your work and everything that you're doing to, to foster just a really important set of conversations. So thank you for that.
1: And thank you for being part of it. I encourage everybody to go and read your series for the Faculty Lounge. Thank you. And once again, it's it's been my pleasure.
2: My pleasure.
0: going to be able to go to home tonight. All right? Does my mom know? Your mom knows. Your mom is here, okay. Would you like to talk to her? Yeah. Do you have it before we bring her in? Do you have any other questions right now? Do you do understand that you're under arrest now? So could I call my girlfriend and tell her that I can come to you? We'll give you an opportunity to... Okay. Did you kind of, I mean, honestly, after telling us what you told us, you kind of figured this was coming? Yeah. This it only for one day. Or? We don't know that at this time. But let me tell you something.